Hey everyone, just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us move up in the search rankings so we can reach more cyclists. You can also support us by sharing our podcast with your friends or on social media. Thanks for listening. Here's the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host Jason Hammond. Jason, how's it going? Hey Todd, it's going. It's been pretty hot the past uh, week, maybe past two weeks, and that was motivation for today's episode, which is riding in hot weather. Todd, I'm sure you have a lot of experience with this. You've grown up in California. It gets hot every summer here. Indeed it does, and if you're racing in July and August and even a few days into September or October in some years, uh, you can be out there and it'll be pretty hot on the bike. So I've certainly learned a few things and made a few mistakes along the way. And I don't think this is, you know, hot weather riding isn't just about when it's 102 degrees out. You can feel the effects of the hot weather even at 80 degrees and it just depends on how hard you're working are you in full sun and also as we'll see throughout the episode humidity also plays a factor in how hot it feels so let's start with just going over some of the basics so heat stress is the most basic or kind of the entry level heat issue and i'm sure we've all had heat stress it's this feeling of thirst feeling of tiredness you feel groggy uh, there are visual changes, like you may may get some splotches in your vision, or things might be a little bit fuzzy. And from there, if we continue to work or we continue to do high high intensity efforts, our body may not be able to cool us down, and the issues may exacerbate from there. Todd, you know this: proteins they denature at around 104, 105 Fahrenheit, and these are the proteins in our cells that are controlling essential processes that we do every day and when they denature they no longer function properly and so this is the scary part about being overheated is when, is when our body temperature gets too high our cells sort of fall apart and can no longer function and that's also why high fevers are so dangerous and you know we want those people to be treated and so imagine in death valley which recently has hit 130 fahrenheit on a given day and they ha actually have a thermometer outside of their main office and of course people like to take pictures next to the highest number they can get on their vacation so imagine you're in this extreme heat and what's happening is our body is sweating and when we sweat we take advantage of this phenomenon called evaporative cooling and essentially what happens is the hottest water molecules that are on our skin they evaporate so we have this pool of water on our skin and only the hot ones evaporate. And so the average temperature of the water on our skin decreases because the hot ones are no longer considered in the average. And so the net effect is our body cools down, the relative temperature cools down. And so this evaporative cooling effect, this is the reason why we are able to cool off. This is the whole point of sweating is to take advantage of this phenomenon and reduce our body temperature through it. Right, and some of the energy goes away because we're turning that water, that hottest water, into a vapor. And that requires an energy for the phase change. So we're actually losing energy or losing heat, in that case, from our skin into that water as it transitions from a, a fluid into a vapor state. And so beyond heat stress, you get into heat stroke. And this is the most extreme form of heat-related illness. There's also things like um, heat-related muscle cramps. 
and heat stroke specifically can be deadly and you're more likely to experience heat stroke if you're overweight, if you're unacclimatized, which we'll talk about in a second, if you have poor fitness, which sort of goes along the lines of being unacclimatized, and also amphetamines or alcohol can also exacerbate it. And we know from the doping episodes, there was a professional writer, his name is escaping me now, who- Tom Simpson. Yeah, Tom Simpson passed away on Mon Von 2 because um, he overheated, and they found amphetamines, a, a, a capsule of amphetamines in his pocket, and they believed he had taken uh, some of those. And so you have to be really careful with the interaction between drugs and heat. So some of the symptoms, weak pulse, low blood pressure, headaches, weakness, dizziness, be aware of these things and, of course, try to avoid them. If you have heat stroke, you know, find, uh, find some shade, get some water you know, get medical attention if you need it. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you're in the case of heat stroke, that's where if there's an EMT or emergency medical tech, they're actually going to aggressively cool you, like in an ice bath, cool you and most likely transport you by ambulance um, for further evaluation to make sure that your core temperature gets down. Uh, usually they may start an IV at some point too, to make sure that you're rehydrated. So that's a, that's a pretty serious state. So Hopefully you don't exercise yourself that far. Uh, to, it certainly happens. I mean, you see it in marathons. You see it in sometimes with high school football and college football. It's certainly in the last 10 years, I can think of a number of, of situations where young men have passed away, um, not being acclimatized, doing their double days in the, the summer heat and high school and college football situations. So certainly uh, something to be aware of if you're really pushing yourself in the heat, you're not, especially if you're not used to it, you can get yourself into a really bad place. I wouldn't say quickly, but in terms of cycling, if it's, oh, it's just a four hour ride or, oh, it's just this far. Even that can get you into pretty serious trouble with heat illness. Yeah. So let's talk about acclimatization next. And this is actually from the official USA Cycling Coaches Manual. They recommend a 14 day acclimatization. So this would be if you're a national level athlete and nationals is in New Mexico or, you know, in some other hot place and you're based out of Washington state or, you know, another place where you may not be regularly acclimatized. And this isn't so much for people who regularly train in their own environment. Typically you would acclimatize naturally as the natural temperature fluctuates higher. And the the times when you should be concerned about acclimatization is when there's this dramatic change from your typical workout levels up to something that's significantly hotter. And so they'll recommend 14 days to get acclimatized. You start with short efforts, so 15 minutes on your first of those 14 days, and then slowly build up to more and more and that would be if you arrive in the new hot location. The other option is if you're still at home and say you're, you're leaving for that hotter location sooner to the event, you could ride in your room with no fan on the trainer, which sounds awful, but is a good way to increase the heat and increase the humidity. And the big thing is there's no airflow, which means your the value of your sweat is less. It's harder to evaporate sweat when there's no airflow going and so you'll your body will heat up faster and you'll you'll adapt to those heat related adaptations that'll occur more quickly. Another option is to wear excessive clothing, like too much clothing outside when you're riding and the point of that is the same, we're raising the our body temperature and we're improving our body's ability to 
deal with that extra heat. And so you would just put on an extra jacket that's a little too warm and ride in it for 15 minutes on the first day, 30 minutes on the next day, you know, leading into being able to do a full ride with the extra jacket on. And then that should prepare you for and simulate being in that hot temperature in the future. I think you end up with a lot of extra laundry when you take that approach too. So the last option is a sauna protocol. And this one's my favorite. We did a whole episode on saunas and that was uh, episode 13 or something. And the point of the sauna protocol is the, the basic protocol is after working out, go into a sauna at approximately 180 Fahrenheit. Most of the saunas that are publicly available would be 180, maybe up to 190. And this, you're supposed to do this directly after your workout. Try and stay in there for 25 to 30 minutes. And if you're doing this purely for acclimatization, you would do this seven days in a row, and that would basically get you ready for the event. And from the episode, you can also use the sauna for other adaptations, and you maybe want to do it one to two times per week throughout the training period. That could also be beneficial, but that's not specifically for heat acclimatization. That's for other benefits. One important thing to note is if you are experiencing some of these heat stroke symptoms, you have to have the maturity to get out of the sauna. And so the sauna is simulating the environment that's dangerous. And obviously, if you don't listen to the warning signs, you'll get in the same trouble as the trouble you're trying to avoid. And now, if I recall with that protocol, there's something with how much fluid you're supposed to take in or not take in in this case. Is that correct? Yeah, so the way the sauna protocol works is you're not supposed to drink any water during because the whole point of the acclimatization is we're trying to heat up the body and basically convince the body that it's okay to be warm. And so sometimes if you're not acclimatized, your body will heat up and heat up and you don't have the capacity to cool it down and your body also doesn't have the capacity to realize that it's safe or it's okay to be warm. The sauna, the idea is we want to heat up the internals, we want to convince them that it's okay. And if we drink water, then we end up cooling them back down and you don't get that train same stimulus. And even after you leave, the particular protocol, after you leave, you're supposed to not drink for another five or 10 minutes because the act of cooling yourself down after you leave is part of the acclimatization. Oh, so the act, the active, the physiologic response of cooling down. So your body's response, sweating, uh, evaporative cooling, all those pieces is what you're saying is the part of the exercise. Yeah, so our body by cooling us down is very similar to us training a muscle. The muscle gets stronger afterwards. Our ability to cool ourselves down gets stronger after we, you know, train it to cool itself down. Right, that makes perfect sense. And I, I believe, if, and stop me if I'm going uh, off on a tangent here, but actually as we acclimatize, what happens is that, relatively speaking, uh, our sweat becomes more dilute. So per unit of sweat, you have relatively fewer electrolytes that you're losing. So you actually lose more water, which is designed to help you cool better, but you still maintain um, the salts that you need. Correct, yeah, that's one of the training adaptations is the easier release of the water, which is really the cooling part. And on the topic of the benefits, there are some benefits even for non-athletes, such as uh, one study that showed that moderate to high frequency of sauna bathing, that was three or four times a week, I believe, it was associated with lower risks of dementia and Alzheimer's disease in uh, middle-aged Finnish men. And they don't really understand why it might have to do with blood flow, 
but it's been shown that saunas are also just generically healthy. And for athletes specifically, uh, one study they did four times per week for three weeks, so a total of 12 sessions. The time to exhaustion for these athletes, I believe they did 50% of VO2 max. It improved by 32%, which the author notes is approximately 1.9% improvement in time trial time. Not, you know, not a big VO2 max protocol, but 1.9% is still plenty for an hour worth of sauna work or uh, an hour and a half worth of sauna work per week. Yeah, that's really pretty substantial improvement. And of course, one of the challenges, we've talked about this, I think, in the Ergogenic AIDS podcast is, well, it doesn't always add on top of all the things you're doing. It's not additive. You can't do sauna and take caffeine and do all your training and think that those are all additive. Some of those things do overlap a little bit. But if we're going to do a generic, uh, where's the value comparison between these different things, this sauna work is two thirds as valuable as caffeine. And honestly, that's kind of a lot because caffeine is a huge performance benefit in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the sauna seems like has other longer lasting uh, effects, although caffeine, well, at least depending on how you consume your caffeine, if it comes from a cup of coffee, there seem to be some health benefits to that as well. True. And so the study on top of this 1.9% improvement in time trial time, they also noted plasma volume increased by 7.1% and red cell volume, red blood cell volume increased by 3.5% as well. And so we're seeing changes in our blood as well. And another study, they did only four sauna exposures. So the first one did 12 sauna exposures, this one only four. And their, this one, their peak plasma volume expansion was 17.8%. And their waking heart rate decreased by 10%. So we're seeing better blood characteristics, better heart adaptations in response to this sauna work. And on this note, on the topic of plasma volume specifically, from another episode on, I think it was I forget the exact title, but it was additional VO2 max information, not the original VO2 max episode, but the follow-up. We noted that in untrained individuals, untrained individuals who had naturally high VO2 max, they also had naturally high blood volume. And so the authors said there's this correlation that may be causation. Obviously, you can't conclude causation, but there is this correlation between naturally high blood volume and naturally high VO2 max. And so this this expansion of plasma volume may be a performance benefit for sauna use. Yeah, and if, if nothing else, we know that water in particular has uh, requires a lot of energy to heat or cool. So in, a, in effect, it's like having a bigger radiator, having a little bit more plasma volume uh, allows you to take it would, in theory, require more heat, more energy to go into the system to increase your core temperature. So you'd make you more resilient. And as you lost water through sweat, you'd potentially have a deeper reservoir to dig on. Yeah, I think that's a big emphasis here in my eyes is the fact that you have more available liquid to sweat out in order to maintain your cooler temperature for longer. That may be one big point is someone who's not acclimatized, they may have this really dense blood, a lot of red blood cells, and they may not have the free water to expel out to cool off. Whereas someone who's acclimatized, they may have that extra plasma volume to, to use for cooling. Yeah, so I think that one actually sort of a benefit on both parts. You, know, you have that bigger reservoir is gonna take longer to heat up and then you can draw down more of it before you're to a critical level. 
Yeah, so the last thing I want to say on saunas from the the other sauna episode, I think sauna training is great. We are in a situation where it is difficult to go into a sauna due to um, virus concerns, but if you're able to get some sauna exposure, I absolutely think it's it's beneficial for heat acclimatization, but also generic performance as well. Yeah, I think the research is there for this one. I would put a check by it. I'd be going to a sauna right now if it were open and available. So talking about uh, decreases in body weight due to dehydration. So there are some interesting studies that show that a decrease in body weight by even like 3% can cause performance drop-offs in athletes. But there's also a well-known study by Tim Noakes that showed that professional marathon runners they lose 10% of their body weight during a race and you know they're still setting world record times. Marathon running is it is submaximal so the muscles produce moderate force whereas maybe the 3% decrease in body weight study was looking at maximal force production so they may not have been studying the exact same thing but it is interesting and I think on this note it is interesting because it may have to do with our brain and the reason I'm pointing this out is uh, Todd is our our central governor expert and there's this idea that maybe part of the acclimatization is our brain being comfortable with becoming dehydrated and feeling okay with it and not sort of you know there are some things that related to heat stroke where it's basically the body is overreacting to the heat and sort of um, freaking out and the central processes are no longer functioning properly and that's why we overheat and if we acclimatize, we teach kind of the brain to say, it's okay to lose some body weight, it's okay to sweat, it's okay to be dehydrated, we're going to do okay, and it sort of gives the body permission to continue to perform well. Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable, and I think a lot of our training is geared in that direction, at least from my perspective as someone who's a central governor theory subscriber. This makes sense. A lot of training is about convincing your body that it's okay to do X, whatever X is, whatever that effort is, whether it's lifting heavier weights or stretching further or riding longer at threshold or riding at a faster pace, riding in the heat, all of those things. At some point we reach our maximum and we're just resetting that threshold through the different training things, whether it's a sauna or a specific training protocol or what have you. I think that's, that's, how, that's my interpretation of it, at least. And I think the key takeaway here is we should think of heat acclimatization, we should think of uh, adapting to heat as training in the same way we think of our threshold training or our endurance training. It is something that, it's, it's pretty simple, you just expose yourself to it and your body adapts in the same way it would adapt to a workout. And so thinking of, of it in those terms is really what we should be doing to make sure that we have everything we need to handle these hot rides. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And of course, it depends on your climate. If you never ride above 60 degrees, then you probably don't need to get into a sauna to help you acclimate. But if you know that you're going to be riding in hot weather, particularly when it's much hotter than you're used to, then you should be investigating some way to get your body used to that so you can perform at your best. So now I want to look at uh, sweat rate, the idea is we have a certain number of liquid that we lose per hour usually. And so it, it'll normally be liters per hour. Sometimes it's milliliters per minute. Sweat rate is important because it tells us how quickly we're getting dehydrated. And obviously if we 
no longer have any fluid to sweat in order to reduce our heat, that's a good way to raise our internal body temperature to dangerous levels. There's an interesting study on sweat rates related to temperature, but also related to humidity. And hopefully it'll help us understand the role of humidity in our concern for temperature and our concern for heat stroke. So this study was actually on horses, and I decided that horses were probably similar enough in uh, biology to for us to extrapolate for human cyclists. And honestly, some of the people I've raced against, like they have the, the engine, the, the heart of a horse, it seems like. So um, what these horses did was at 50% at of VO2 max, they uh, rode or um, you know ran for 30 minutes and they were put into three different groups. So the first group was cool and dry. So that's 68 Fahrenheit, 20 Celsius, at 45 to 55% humidity. And their sweat losses were 7.9 liters. So that's two gallons. It's really also not that dry, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. But compared to the humid group, it, it's um, a lot drier. So, okay, so the first group, um, it was cool and dry. They lost 7.9 liters. Hot and dry, which was 91 Fahrenheit, 33 Celsius, same humidity, 45 to 55%. And their sweat loss was 9.9 liters, or approximately 25% more. And then for the third group, which was hot and humid, 91 Fahrenheit, 33 Celsius, but 80 to 85% humidity, their sweat losses were actually 6.6 .6 liters. And so the point... Wait. It got they lost less water in more humid conditions correct they actually lost the least amount of water in the hot and humid condition so to explore this more basically what happened was they stopped the experiment when they reached 41.5 degrees celsius or 106.7 uh, fahrenheit as a core temperature yes and so the time of running, for example, the time of running for cool and dry was 37 minutes. And for hot and dry was 28 minutes. And then for hot and humid, they only ran for 16 minutes before they, they reached that core temperature of 106.7 Fahrenheit. Oh, so if you compare their sweat their rate, then it's, it looks a little bit different. Correct. They lost, yeah, you would have to divide it out by the working load. Mm -hmm. But the, the big takeaway here is the humidity dramatically decreased the amount of time to reaching this unsafe level of temperature. Compared to hot and dry, so this is 91 Fahrenheit, 45 to 55 humidity was 28 minutes, and hot and humid, which is the same temperature, 80 to 85% humidity, 16 minutes. Almost It half. took them half the amount of time to hit like a very high core body temperature. And so realizing that humidity is very significant in terms of hitting that very high temperature, that's something to be concerned about and something to think about when it comes to determining if you're going to be in an unsafe situation. So the horses then, they were kept in the condition area after the event in order to monitor their resting sweat rate, basically looking at how quickly their body stops sweating afterwards. And the cool and dry condition was 30 minutes. The hot and dry condition was 45 minutes. And the hot and humid condition, they didn't actually stop sweating. After they, they held them there for 60 minutes and they sweated for the whole 60 minutes. So they're still trying to cool off. The cool and dry had cooled themselves off in that short time period, but the 
hot and humid was still after 60 minutes actively sweating trying to reduce their core temperature and not being successful at least in an hour worth of time correct so that's the big takeaway here is the humidity has an effect on how we sweat how we gain heat and how we react to heat related stress and there is actually a quantification of this it's called wet bulb globe temperature which it's a value that's it's a value in degrees but it's um it's sort of arbitrary like it's just used to compare different wet bulb globe temperatures and it's based on humidity and temperature and to give you an idea of how this value works they have uh different brackets so if it's relatively low oh this is safe to train in if it's a little bit higher you know consider raising the amount of rehydration you do during your exercise and then if it's very high they'll say you know cancel the event or be very careful be monitor your athletes closely something like that a few days ago here it was 97 fahrenheit and i looked up the humidity 97 fahrenheit 36 celsius it was 28 percent humidity and that comes out to 79 wet bulb globe temperature and according to the chart that means recommended for normal activity which is fine monitor fluid intake so make sure you're hydrating at the same 97 fahrenheit 36 celsius at 66 humidity you go over the threshold where it is now 90.1 wet bulb globe temperature which means cancel exercise uncompensable heat stress impossible to prevent heat stress is essentially what they were saying there's no way to drink enough fluid at 97 fahrenheit and 66 humidity and compared to 28 humidity oh normal activity you know make sure you drink enough you just raise the humidity up by 40 percent 30 30 percent yeah 40 percent and suddenly you should cancel your workout so respecting the fact that humidity also contributes to our inability to cool down that should be noted that should be a concern for someone who's who's planning to do a ride in hot temperatures and i can tell you that from a series of experiences and you know you called it here i i'm used to hot in the summer and relatively low humidity, well, hot, a few days hot and relatively low humidity. And you know, I've ridden other places, I've ridden in Nevada, I've ridden in Arizona, and where it's been that sort of temperature, 100 degrees, but it's 15, 20% humidity, that's really not a big deal. It, it's that exercise is normal, stay hydrated, but exercise is normal. You don't feel it, you know it's hot, but because you're sweating, it's evaporating efficiently. Really, you don't notice the heat stress. I can tell you a few years ago, I was trained for a half marathon just as a side thing and running here, no problem. I was in pretty good shape. I took two trips. I went to St. Louis, Missouri for a little bit, and then I went to Hawaii for a little bit. Both were hot and humid, and it was a completely different experience with running. I, the sweat rate was definitely different, I can tell you that, but just in terms of the rate of perceived exertion and ability to maintain a pace, hot and humid, I could tell that I was so much hotter and that I also observed the sweating after, like, why am I still sweating right now? And because I'm trying to get rid of this excess heat that I built up in the hot and humid environment. Yeah, I grew up in Delaware, which um, is a really low-lying state. And I think the highest point is like 400 feet above sea level. It's basically 
a swamp. It was underwater 10 million years ago or whatever. And it, it's obviously humid there. And I remember sometimes after soccer practice, after you're done showering and you put, you know, your clothes on, you, you're just sweating after the shower. And, and it's like, why did I shower if I'm, if I'm still cooling it down? still keep sweating. Yeah. yeah. Respect that humidity has a role to play. If you're out in California like us, probably don't have to worry about the humidity. And the other thing to note with the way humidity fits into this equation is air is actually harder to heat up when it's more humid. And that's because the water, like we said earlier, takes a lot of energy to heat up. It's a really good heat sink. And so if you have higher humidity, it's, it's generally harder to get the air temperature higher. And that's why on the West Coast, you'll see these really high temperatures because the, the nitrogen, the oxygen, isn't that hard to heat up. But when you start adding water vapor in there, it takes a lot more energy. In comparison, in terms of the way the air interacts with you, a dry 97 is very different than a humid 97. And I wish that I had done the math to say what the cutoff is, but a dry 97 may be equivalent with the wet bulb globe temperature to like 85 and humid or 83 and humid. You just have to be careful with the humidity. It really uh, ramps up the, the danger factor. Let's talk about rehydration now. So we know that the body wants to maintain the electrolyte characteristics of, of our blood rather than total blood volume. So when we sweat, our body tries to keep the concentration of like sodium, potassium, things like that in the blood. And we know that we need electrolytes and we know that rehydration occurs better with electrolytes. And one example of this is hyponatremia, which is too little salt in the body. So if we, when we're rehydrating or when we're hydrating during a workout, we may, if we just use uh, pure water, we don't have any electrolytes, we may run into a condition where we don't have enough sodium in our body. And that can be potentially fatal. And Todd, do you know why it's called hyponatremia? Well, so it's re relating to sodium loss. And I, well, sodium is NA on the um periodic table i believe that's part of it yes yeah, so, there's a better answer tell me no that's right so in um eastern europe it's natrium instead of sodium sodium and that's where the na comes from and whereas uh western europe in the u.s refers to it as sodium it's referred to as natrium and we know that eastern europe was doing a lot of sports science related work and so maybe in the 40s they referred to it as hyponatremia and that name sort of stick stuck instead of saying hypo sodium Sodia, sodemia or something yeah so uh that that's your little fun fact for the week um and also actually hypernatremia is also an issue and that's for example uh, sailors who only had access to ocean water of course uh, won't be able to survive in reality, we want something that's in between these two situations. We want some sodium. We really want our sports strength to match our blood characteristics because then our body doesn't need to compensate at all in order to bring that water into our bloodstream. And there's this term called osmolality, or I'm sorry, osmolality. And there's osmolality and there's osmolarity which are slightly different, but essentially they represent the same thing, which is the concentration of solutes in the fluid. 
And for us, the solutes we want to focus on, focus on the most are sodium and a little bit of potassium. Although Todd, I know you have some uh, passionate dealings with uh, electrolytes and I think you mentioned specifically that sodium really is the big one. Potassium probably not as important. I think we hype potassium a lot, but yeah, sodium is the biggest component that we're going to be losing. And then you also have to have some chloride to go with it. That's helpful. The, the positive and negative ions happening there. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, I, I like to say this and, and inspired by someone I heard at a conference, which was basically to say, like, yes, you need to manage your fluid. Yes, you probably need to manage your electrolytes. You do get electrolytes from food. And oh, by the way, we have these highly evolved kidneys. And the exact quote is, the dumbest kidney is probably smarter than the s smartest sports scientist when it comes to working out the appropriate concentration of fluid and uh, solute for your body to maintain optimal performance. So close is good enough in this case. Right, so back to the essential idea of we want water with the electrolyte levels that match our blood. The idea here is it, our body is easy to work. It's easy to work with that water because it just goes right into the bloodstream. There's no need to filter it or anything. And essentially, if we have too much water, our body has to compensate by sort of getting rid of the extra water in order to maintain that electrolyte ratio. And if we have too much electrolytes, our body has to expel the extra electrolytes in order to hit that balance again. And so the idea is if we drink something that is the same level as our blood, we don't really have to do that work as much. It may be easier on our kidneys. But like Todd said, if we don't get the ratio exactly right, our body has this ability, this very good ability to make it correct as long as we have enough water and enough electrolytes. And the point with hyponatremia is we don't have any electrolytes. And so there's nothing for our body to work with to balance that out. We're just depriving it of that essential nutrient. So realizing that sports drinks, there is some use for them, but they're not the end-all be-all. It's more about, do we have enough water? Do we have enough sodium? Do we have enough potentially potassium? I believe the uh, potassium is maybe one-tenth of the demand by weight of sodium in terms of the amount that we need. And I think that's what we mean by you don't need that much. And the recommendation for riding in hot weather, and even this is a good recommendation in general, you should have one bottle of full dose mix if you're going to use an electrolyte mix, and then one bottle of water. And rather than some people encourage you to do half, half mix, half water in both bottles, I believe it's actually been shown to be better to have a full dose mix and one of water because sometimes you want the mix and you want the sugar in it or the electrolytes in it and other times you just want water to either wash things down or potentially pour on your back or something like that. So when you talk about electrolyte balance, I think a good practical experiment or good practical example of this is if you've ever come back from a long or a hot ride and you're rehydrating and you, you know you've lost some fluid. You can stand on the bathroom scale and verify that you've lost some fluid weight. And you're going through the rest of your day, a couple hours after your ride, and you notice that you're uh, running to the toilet to urinate a lot. You probably missed in terms of too much water and not enough electrolytes, not enough solute, because your, your kidney's trying to actually flush out that water to 
keep your balance. And so if you've ever had that experience, uh, that is probably a sign to you that maybe your rehydration strategy could benefit from a little more salt or a little more electrolytes or electrolyte drink, or even in your ride, having a little bit more electrolyte drink. So you don't have that phenomenon because if you're trying to rehydrate, the last place you want to be is in the restroom, losing water to try to keep your electrolyte balance high enough. Yeah, and usually like a very light or clear urine is another example. And uh, the other thing they say is copious amounts. If you have copious amounts of of clear urine, you probably don't have enough electrolytes because your body's trying to get rid of the the water to balance out the numbers. And we did also actually have an episode on hydration and some notes from that episode. We know maximal water absorption is about a liter per hour, 32 ounces, and that's only when you're really dehydrated. Most of the time it's closer to like 16 ounces is the most that our body could absorb. And we also know that glucose content doesn't affect absorption rates. So really it's about the electrolytes. Sugar water may be nice. It may give you a little more energy after your recovery or after your ride as part of your recovery shake, but it's not gonna help you absorb water better. And one note is after your ride, directly after your ride, you should actually err on the side of saltier water. And the point of this is one protocol that was mentioned in a study was let's drink water with plenty of salt in it. And then for the first hour, drink a liter of water with salt in it. The next hour, drink salty water, basically. And then from there on, drink regular water. And because you have too many electrolytes, your body will absorb that plain water later better. So you'll, it's a good protocol to eventually balance out. And like we said before with hydration, the point is we need plenty of electrolytes. We need plenty of water and our body will figure out the ratio on its own. And when you say salty water, do you recall what the concentration was? I don't. I, I remember they did it in terms of like micrograms per milliliter of water it was a very scientific way of determining oh wow and so i did back calculate the math for like a five gallon uh portion of water and it was it was not very much it was like a a half a teaspoon for a five gallon jug oh wow Um, yeah that's quite modest but at the same time it tasted like salty water if -hmm. that makes sense when i drank it you could tell the salt was in it and it's a little weird to drink water like that another option would be um, something that is is nice to do is like for example we know soy sauce is a salty sauce and if you're gonna have rice after you ride anyway soy sauce can be a way for you to get a bunch of sodium in and then you just drink plain water and your body sort of figures out that ratio mm-hmm. um, so another option would be some people like to do the recovery shake other people like to do real food after their rides so if you do real food you can eat salty food and first off that salty food is gonna taste delicious directly after your ride anyway because we're craving that salt but two, it'll give you the sodium to just drink plain water and balance out. Yeah, so multiple ways to get to the right solution. And as long as you give your body the resources and a little bit of time, it's going to work out the right balance. Exactly. And another tip that I have is half-strength Gatorade is a good option. And I know cycling coaches in general really don't like Gatorade. They're very into this osmolality idea of things have to be the right ratio. I think that's true if you only drink Gatorade, that's not a good idea because it is really high in sodium. 
But the point of half-strength Gatorade is it does actually have a pretty good osmolality for absorption. And from a Boy Scout camp when I was a junior, they always said they gave us a pack of Gatorade powder every day as part of our rations for backpacking. And they always said, if you ever feel lousy, if you ever feel tired, basically, if you don't feel good at any point, put half the packet of Gatorade in the water and chug it. And 90% of the time, you know, you feel better. And it's just because you're dehydrated and this slightly salty water is what it takes to put the fluid back in. Yep, absolutely. And then on the topic of electrolyte tablets or drinks, um, there are canisters. Those are zero calories, so keep that in mind. They can be really convenient to take, but they don't provide you any of the glucose or carbs that you should probably be eating if you're going to be doing ultra-endurance stuff. And that, yeah, specifically canisters are good for ultra-endurance because you can go to any water faucet and just drop the tablets in. That can be really convenient. There's also options like Scratch Labs uh, is an example of a powder. It contains sugar and it's pretty expensive. And so you have to decide for yourself if it's worth it. Um, they claim to do a lot of science. And at the same time, as Todd said, maybe uh, our kidneys are, are all we need in terms of getting the right balance. And uh, you can put some powder, whether that's Gatorade powder or Scratch powder in a Ziploc bag if you wanna take it on your ride or you could be relying on food for the carbs and then bring these electrolyte canisters, the fizzy uh, tablets as your electrolyte option. And the only note that I have on this is be careful about mixes that have caffeine in them. And part of that is because people, you know, you may like them because, oh, it works so well, when in reality it's sort of fake working well by just getting you a little bit, um, you know, high on caffeine for a little bit. The other thing is if you have, you know, five servings of this caffeine powder on your drive home from the race, you, you know, you're, you're going to be shaking. And so be and, careful. And looking for a toilet probably too. Caffeine is a diuretic. Yeah. And so just be careful. I, I opt to not have caffeine in any of my gels or any of my powders or anything like that. And it's because I drink caffeine before the ride and I'm controlling my dosage and you just have to be careful with like 50 milligrams per per whatever per scoop and you end up having five scoops i mean that's two or three cups of coffee and then the last thing i have are a couple stories and todd i'd like of course to hear your story any stories you have about heat stress or heat stroke and there was actually a rider that i was at collegiate nationals and it was hot in the southeast pretty humid as well and one rider from Rhode Island, so not hot and not humid location, he wore a long sleeve skin suit that was black on a up and down crit, so a very exhaustive race. And he actually basically got heat stroke. He wasn't taken to the emergency room, but he was treated on site. And yeah, he overheated. He was working incredibly hard. He had to climb every lap. And so the climbing is, can be dangerous because you have less evaporative cooling from the airflow. And, you know, he made a couple of mistakes there. He had a long sleeve skin suit on. It was black. Those are two good ways to increase the total heat coming into your body and also decreases the ability to cool off. He was also from Rhode Island, which means he was less likely to be acclimatized to the south, to the heat of the south, and also the humidity, which 
made it even more dangerous. And so luckily there were EMTs there ready to take care of him. Um, but that's a good example of a time when he should have either acclimatized beforehand, decreased his clothing, maybe multiple, he could have done you know multiple of these things, or uh, he could have done something else like had a teammate or uh, someone else on the team who like dumped water on him on the climb, um, like a feeder who could help out in some way. So, I mean, I can tell you, I've found all sorts of ways to uh, challenge my body. Of course, uh, some, some good, some that you look for and some just probably not so good. Um, and sometimes, especially I think with mountain biking, this is more common because of the terrain it can be rocky and, and bumpy and every now and then you will drop a water bottle on in a mountain bike race. And sometimes that's okay because it's a short lap and it's three more miles, five more miles. You have a feed in 15, 20 minutes and it's not a big deal. Sometimes it's one big lap and you took two water bottles and there's just little feed Dixie cups throughout the course. You learn after you do that once that you should stop at that feed station and refill your one water bottle rather than try to save time by just taking the little Dixie cup because you just can't get enough water that way. So I've been there. I've learned my lesson. Heat illness is not fun. You feel miserable, but there's this like point point being here. There, there is a tipping point where if it's really short, if it's 10 more minutes, then whatever you dropped your water bottle, you can get on with it. But if it's going to be hours and you only have one bottle of water, you need to figure out how you're going to get sufficient fluids. And sometimes, even though it's counterintuitive in the moment of a race to stop, like in those situations, I probably would have done much better had I stopped and picked up my water bottle and then got on with the race rather than trying to continue and, and push through without enough water. So uh, yeah, certainly, certainly been there. And you know, when that's happened, it's always been a hot, like it was a hot day. I wasn't like it happened at 55 degrees. It happened at 85 degrees or 90. I think that's a good point. Having the maturity to realize that heat stress is a factor in this event is really important. I liked uh, Lachlan Morton. He, uh, during the GB Enduro event, and there's a video on it from EF uh, Pro Racing, he crashed and landed in a pile of uh, cow poop. And he was mature enough to know that he couldn't spray it off with his water because he knew he needed that water uh, for his event. And so, yeah, it takes some maturity to say, I need to stop and make sure I have enough water. And on that note, all of my best training rides, I drink two bottles of water per hour. If I'm able to stop, if I'm able to string my my ride together such that I have somewhere to stop every hour to fill up both of my bottles, I'll always have a great ride. And so even even at moderate temperatures, like I said at the beginning of the episode, 85, even at 85 degrees, you probably could do with eight bottles an hour and, and you'll see improvements in your efforts. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to make sure and you don't want to learn this the hard way. Well, you don't want to learn either side the hard way. You always want to be in the sweet spot. So if you're going to drink fluid, Make sure you don't drink just water all the time, but then also not trying to get by with just a little bit. Oh, I don't want to stop. That's going to irritate me to Jason's point. It's worth stopping. Your ride's going to be better. The 
the stimulus you're gonna get from your train is gonna be better by taking that couple of minutes throughout your ride to stop, top off your water bottles and make sure you're hydrated because that's gonna ultimately lead to better performance for you in the long run. And speaking of learning the hard way, I actually had to learn about hydration the hard way. I crashed in a crit and I was laying on the side of the road. I, um, I cut my hand kind of badly and the EMT came and he picked me up and I passed out when he picked me up. And so they, they put me back on the ground. I came back and then he picked me up again and I passed out again. And uh, so that time they, you know, slowly brought me up. They, you know, we, we moved up slowly. But the point of this was I did not hydrate before the event. It doesn't matter how much water you drink during the event if you come into it dehydrated. And so I, I was so dehydrated before the event started that my blood was so thick I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get the blood into my head uh, when they picked me up quickly, like the, the rapid loss of blood pressure. And so the lesson there was you have to go into a race hydrated. And if you're a weekend warrior instead of a racer, Friday night is hydration time, Saturday morning is hydration time. You need to prepare for your event with water and electrolytes. Yeah, absolutely. It's that's so important. And just as an aside, nothing to do with cycling, but I can tell you some of my experience working sideline high school football sports coverage. I'd say nine out of ten times those kids has a cramp during the football game. It has nothing to do with the football game. It has to do with the fact they didn't tend to their nutrition beforehand. And it's usually a simple question. When's when's the last time you urinated? I don't know. Okay, well, so when you did, what color was it? Did it look like iced tea or was it clear? Uh, like iced tea or lemonade. Like, okay, so you're having a cramp now, not because it's warm today, but because you didn't hydrate 24 hours beforehand and manage your fluid levels. So it's it's super important to make sure you manage that. Absolutely. So if you like this episode, please give us a review. Please share with your friends or on social media. That would be great. We really enjoy making these episodes and we want to reach as many cyclists as we can. Hopefully we can grow into a big community. And uh, Todd, if you have anything else? Well, I think I have to say now, make sure you stay hydrated. But of course, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.